in Seattle. Seattle. You need to buy yourself a home. We'll be right there for you. Because we're the realtors that you can trust. So go to RodandGunsitDown.com. Don't go anywhere unless you want to. It's the Ron and Don Show, starring Ron and Don, and sometimes me, at ronanddon.com. Hey, you guys, what's going on? Welcome to episode 646 now of the Ron and Don Show, and we're back live in the Les Schwab studio. What is up, Ron and Don Nation? Hey, coming up on the Ron and Don Show, Ron and I had a friend who's been on this show before. He just passed. It wasn't a surprise to us. Uh, and Ron and I handled that a little differently. I wrote some things, and he decided to meditate about it. Uh, meditate about it. So we're going to talk about our journey uh, with our friend Gary Verrill that just passed away. Also, an op-ed, Seattle Times. We're recording this on a day where we're all supposed to be out voting. It's from a Seattle police detective, which is very interesting to me because a lot of times the rank and file don't speak when it comes to the mayor or the city council. And someone has written something that I just got done reading the Seattle Times, a Seattle cop that I thought was extraordinary. Before we get to that, though, let's get to this. Let's talk about drones and drone. It, it, it's really amazing when you think about drone technology. And in fact, drones right now, Ron, are busy fighting wars and delivering soup. Yeah, there was an interesting article on uh, in the newspaper talking about this thing. It's the 10-year anniversary of when Amazon was supposed to be able to deliver stuff by drone to your house. And, and this made a lot of news a decade ago. And I remember it clearly uh, because they had a test center here in Washington. And so what was supposed to happen is that Amazon was uh, on this quest to be able to, to deliver stuff within like an hour. I remember that. And, yeah. and so the way it was going to happen is you would make an order only for specific items. Uh, and then a drone would pick it up and you would have a little, almost like a QR code that you would place where you wanted the drone to land. So if you had a driveway, you would go out, you would put this thing on the ground, the drone would see it, come down and land, and it would drop off your package. And beer, so, deli- beer delivery right here, yeah. right? Yeah. And so Jeff Bezos went on all the TV shows and he was talking about this. And at the time they said, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be a thing in major markets by 2015. And so now seven, eight years later, it still hasn't happened in, except in College Station, Texas. They have the Amazon uh, test program for this. And so they said, yeah, this is turning out to be way harder than we thought. (laughs) And they're like, number one, it can't weigh more than, uh, I think it's like five pounds or it might even be three pounds. Like it's has to be relatively light. Um, it has to be non-breakable. So, you know, there can be no glass in there. Uh, nothing that would, if you accidentally dropped it from a few feet, that would shatter. Um, uh, on the driveway thing, it said, well, your car can't be in the driveway. So you have to move your car out of the driveway and you have to put this little thing on the ground for it to land. And, um, these packages might roll into the street. Uh, there could be a thief that just follows the drone around. In Seattle, as, Washington, no way would there be a thief as, following as, a drone as, around taking your package. That, ne- that would never happen. And it says you can only do one package at a time. So the no. drone has to fly out to your house and fly back. Like it can't hold 50 packages like a truck could. And so they said that we're working on all these efficiencies. And, and I just found it, um, I found it really 
interesting in this regard that we're constantly in this um, mode. And, and I use Amazon all the time because I got for like the, the other day I, had to, I was looking for something. I stopped by three stores. I didn't find the thing. And it's like, you know what? Like I want to support local, but it's like, gee, like you, we needed a cable for something. It's like, I'm not going to drive around to three stores looking for this cable. It's, just the, just the emissions it, looking it, for the cable. It's yeah. kind of a, an unusual cable. Like Fred Meyer might have it, but they probably won't. And so I'm going to drive over there. I'm going to waste all this time. I'm going to waste gas. I'm going to get in there. And even little stuff where like, I need the six foot length and they got the three foot length. And the, <laughs> yeah. like now I'm going to office depot. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's, it's too much. So like I use Amazon more probably than the average person. However, in this thing, it's like, when do you have enough? And so the relentless nature of Amazon and the guaranteed delivery and the, the prime membership and all that stuff is one of the things that made that side of the business um, effective. And at the other side, you're like, okay, when can you stop? When do we say that, you know, getting a package in a day or two is good enough. Like the, the cable I just talked about. I ordered the cable yesterday. It's waiting at my mailbox right now. Oh, I thought, I thought, cause the Amazon truck just pulled up outside. I thought maybe. No, I didn't do outside. it for your house. I, I I'm not even kidding. The truck just pulled up as you're talking about this story. Right. So it's sort of like <laughs> we've, we've really moved the goalpost because when internet commerce first started, it would be weeks before you got something. Sometimes I'll buy stuff on Etsy, the, the handmade store. It might take two or three weeks to get there. And like, that's normal. Yeah. Like there's someone that made this thing. They put it in a box. They take it to the post office. The post office runs it however they run it. And then it ends up at your house. That's seems reasonable to me mm. that like, Hey, you may, I bought this uh, little leather thing uh, a couple months ago. It took about, three weeks to get here mm -hmm. and it's like okay like that's that's kind of a thing like are this, you wearing leather underwear again yes i'm wearing leather underwear again okay yeah so i found it fascinating to where it's like they haven't pulled the plug on this program yet to where it's like maybe we don't need to deliver stuff by drone uh within an hour yeah you know what's really interesting about that you think about who's in the field in ukraine right now on both sides and it's tech companies uh, a lot of the drones that are being flown on the Ukraine side have been created here in the U.S. And a lot of what you see on the Russian side has been created in places like Iraq, Iran, and of course, China and, and even North Korea. So these tech companies, their, their ability to find out more about what these drones are capable of uh, has been accelerated not just because of war around the world, but also because of COVID. And I think we'll all admit during COVID, when we were all scared to death, uh, you drive drive through my neighborhood and you see baskets of goodies out on people's porches because they were so thankful that these dryer drivers were willing to take these risks and be on the front lines. So, and that's when Amazon grew even more. And I think the ability. Uh, to collect information on tech when it comes to drones 
uh, it has been accelerated. So let, let me ask you this too, because I just it just dawned on me another technology. Is your son at all attracted to virtual reality? Because in Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg was like, Metaverse is the thing. We're changing the name of the company to Meta. Everybody's going to want to wear these goggles. They teamed up with Ray-Ban, I think, to make a new VR set. They've lost about $45 billion dollars. And nobody that I know is interested in the metaverse yet. Yeah, he has a he has a pair of goggles. He got them last Christmas. He wore them during Christmas. Uh, he did some of the boxing games. I did one of the boxing games with him. It was really extraordinary. But then I got very dizzy. Uh, and he has not been interested in the in putting those goggles on since. So then, I so. think sometimes tech we we live in a tech hub. Um, and and your stuff on the military that that to me is a legitimate use. Like having drones that can do surveillance, or if you needed now, if we need something, oh, they're doing they're doing more than surveillance, Ron. They are they are needed, dropping bombs and firing missiles. Yeah, so, if you need ammunition yeah. or some medical supplies, someone where you ran out of plasma, and you need to deliver that. That's a legitimate usage. But if I if I can't get my lazy butt out of the house, if I need a can of soup, really. Like I can't drive to the store and get the soup and come back as opposed to having a drone drop it off or the metaverse. Like I, I think sometimes I like tech as much as the next guy, but like sometimes you need to just go, this is, there's not a use case for this. People don't want to be meta sized. They want to like live in reality. Yeah. I, I don't know. I it's think. pretty interesting. You and I actually did something the other day uh, where I was surprised to see you and you were surprised to see me. Do you remember where we saw each other at? I do not. Actually shopping in a grocery store. Oh, yeah. We, were, <laughs> we ran into each other at, at yeah. Trader Joe's. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you, you didn't order online. I didn't order online. We're actually walking in the grocery store. It's kind of a nice thing. Yeah, so. it was fun. Yeah. Hey, we'll see you in about 60 seconds. Don't go anywhere. Hey, you guys, Ron and Don here for Ron and Don Real Estate. We have some clients that are part of the Ron and Don Nation. They listened to the podcast. They called us a couple months ago and they said, you know, we want to sell sometime first part of the year in 2024. Is it too early to be talking? And Ron, we said, absolutely not. In fact, they are looking for a home in Bend, Oregon right now. They're going to be moving from the Edmonds community. And the cool thing is, this has given them enough time to for us to come over. We all went over and we said, hey, here's some things. Here's some work that you could do on your house. Because they're, they're like, we're retired. We love to do some work, but point us in the right direction. Here's some work that you can do on your house. You're going to save lots of money. More money is going to show up in the sale. Here's some other things that when you guys are out of the house, I'll bring in a contractor and we'll correct and we'll fix. And then here's some other things you you shouldn't you shouldn't remedy. You shouldn't you should pass this on. And a lot of it had to do with tile colors and remodeling and all that. I said, you know what? Let's pass that on to the next buyer. And in the meantime, this has given them a lot of time to do their own work prepare their own house, bring it to market. And Ron, they're going to save and make a lot of money because they reached out to us early, right? It all starts with a Ron and Don sit down. We can't emphasize that enough. We would love to meet with you, see if we'd make a good team. And you go to ronanddonsitdown.com, set up that Zoom meeting. Uh, I'll reach out to you as soon as I get it. We'll get it on the books and then we'll start your real estate process. It begins at ronanddonsitdown.com.
All right, you guys, welcome back to the Ron and Don Show. I think what's really extraordinary, when we were on Trusted Radio Cairo, I broke a lot of stories about cops, about crime, because I knew a lot of cops, and they trusted me. And it was usually from someone that was rank and file, maybe someone that's a sergeant, a detective with Seattle or one of the counties around here. And, and, and they knew that I wouldn't share that information. What's really interesting, and I think extraordinary, because the rank and file has always been afraid to speak, is there's a Seattle detective that wrote an op-ed. She's been a detective for 20 years. Uh, She complained, and I don't even think complained. I think she explained that uh, Seattle cops have not had a contract in three years now. Uh, The reason she wrote the op-ed is because we're we're all getting ready to vote. This is on a Tuesday, so by the time you hear this, we'll vote it. And she just... I don't think she was trying to put her thumb on the scale, but I think she was trying to explain that, hey, 600 cops in the last couple of years have left Seattle. Many of them have retired or they've gone to other agencies. Even state patrol now where you weren't allowed to do a lateral move. In other words, to be on state patrol, you had to go uh, become a state patrol cop. They'll not take a King County cop. They'll take a Seattle cop. They'll take a Pierce County cop. You have to go to their training session for just four weeks. But there's lots of agencies around here that are desperate. There's lots of agencies that she explains they pay better. They treat you better. And she said it all comes down to your vote. And it all comes down to your vote of who you decide you want to be on the city council. Ron, anything in there that surprised you? I just have to, I, I was rather surprised and proud of her that not only she wrote this, uh, but a lot of cops in the past would have never done this because they would have been afraid of reprisals from the mayor, the city council, and also from the command staff in the, in the department. Yeah, I thought that it was very brave to write what she wrote. And she didn't say, uh, here, here's the candidates I recommend. She's like, I'm not going to recommend a candidate for you. I'm just going to lay out the landscape as I see it. The thing that I'm trying to wrap my brain around is... In our adult lives, so let's call it 25 years or so, how dramatically the perception of the job of law enforcement and even of of fire departments, EMSs, first-line responders, the the perception of that has changed so dramatically. Like, I I remember you were considering one time trying out for a first-responder job. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people would would show up for these these job calls. Thousands. Th- well, thousands then. Yeah. Like when, it, I, when, I, when, when I looked at Seattle Fire and also being a Seattle cop, and this would have been when I was in my 20s and also the FBI, uh, and I had a at, – at that time, you couldn't have contacts and you couldn't have surgery. Now they would accept that. You couldn't have tattoos. You couldn't have a lot of things. And so I wasn't qualified because of that. Uh, but if you want to be a Seattle cop or firefighter, there's usually 50 jobs open. And on average, there would be 2,000 candidates a year. And so you would have this incredible turnout. Uh, people would really compete in a very difficult way to, to fill these job things. And then there was a sense of pride and respect, I think, uh, that came with that job. And, and, and obviously there are, you know, are not everyone is a, is a great officer. And, and we had our, our share of people that were bad apples over the years. But by and large, if you were, um, in a coffee shop and, and you saw a group of police officers, I was always cordial. I, I respected the people that were serving. If I saw firefighters, normally I'd say, wow, those guys are better looking than me. And uh, they, they really, uh, that seems like a fun job in a lot of ways. I remember doing
doing a TV story where I got to be a Bellevue firefighter for a day. And I went through the training and carried the hose up to the top. And that was one of the most popular TV packages I did. I got to, you know, release the hose on a barrel that they lit on fire and drive in the truck. And people were like, oh, my God, that's so cool. And I can't believe you got to do that. And what was it like to, you know, to, to carry the gear and how heavy was it and jump in the bunker pants and all that stuff. Uh, and so now you flash forward to today and, and I don't know if I really have an understanding. Uh, I mean, I think I do, but culturally to see the shift in that, and we used to have when, when guys and gals would come back from military service, many of them would want to transition into being a I don't, So, so I got to push, I don't see, cause there's still thousands of people lining up to be a firefighter, uh, not to be a volunteer firefighter, but certainly be a firefighter where you get paid. I, I, I don't think it's comparable firefighters and, and police officers. And, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just pushing back because I don't see that. They're, still, they're still lined up to be Seattle okay. firefighters. No one's lined up to be a Seattle cop. So maybe it's the cultural change around police officers. Absolutely. And, and that it makes me sad for this city because I don't think this happens nationwide. Like I, I was just in Chicago with my brother and we were going around downtown Chicago. We were in the suburbs of Chicago. We went to a Cubs game. And you would see law enforcement out. They would be walking the beat. Uh, if you're down by Millennium Park, and this is just a random Saturday. It's not like there was a big event going on. I saw police officers interacting with the community on foot, walking around. I saw them in cars, uh, pulling up and, you know, just it, they were, they were in the fabric of the community. Um, when, you know, I've been to New York, I know that you've been to New York. You see law enforcement around and you see them interact with the community. And by and large, it's a positive experience. And you, yeah, you also I see a lot better. more violence in those cities. I mean, we're, we're a metro of under, well, Seattle's under a million. You're talking about metros that are 8 million to 15 and 16 million. But I still million. see them. Yeah. For you to say there's not an issue, though, around the country hiring cops, it's an issue at every department in the country where I will agree with you, though. When you go to New York, you do see cops on the street. When you go to Chicago, you do see cops on the street. Uh, here in Seattle, I never see cops on the street because there are none. Yeah, yeah, there are none. And so I think we've really, what this, this op-ed said to me is, um, as a, what, what kind of culture do we want in the Pacific Northwest? And so I think it's a, I think most people are not, don't have a problem with being progressive. I think most people don't have a, a problem with leaning democratic uh, for the most part. Uh, I think there's certain districts and certain parts of the, of the, of the state that lean red, but for the most part, uh, I think on the West coast, we we're pro environment or pro human rights. Uh, you know, we, we like to be progressive uh, with our laws. I don't think most people have a problem with that. So this, this defund the police, the police are the enemy. Uh, we're not a law and order. Anything goes kind of deal. Let's decriminalize this and decriminalize that. I, I really feel like this op-ed struck a chord to go, really? Really? Do we do? We, I don't, do, I don't do we not want to. When I, when, I talk to my, when I talk to my most liberal friends, it, it's interesting. And I just had a very, very liberal friend of mine, and you know her. And she lived on Capitol Hill for 25 years. Uh, and she works with the homeless. She's in soup kitchens, all that stuff. Her view has completely changed uh, because they kept breaking into an apartment. They kept stealing her scooter. They kept following her home. Uh, if you walk through Capitol Hill, block to block and street to street, 
and you see the way that people are living on the streets and the way they're treating those businesses and harming those businesses. If you live in those neighborhoods, she just moved to Kirkland. She's like, you know what? F it. I'm done. And, and, and I think some of the exodus that we see in California, we certainly see in San Francisco, you are going to see, you are going to see in Seattle as well. The, the, the interesting thing, and we'll talk about this in another episode is Jeff Bezos leaving. He's not the only tech person leaving and people better understand that. If you look at California, California used to move to Seattle. They, they, they don't move to Seattle like they used to. They moved to Texas and they're moving to Florida because that's where people feel safe. That's where they feel like real estate is more affordable. And like Washington, they don't have to pay a state sales tax. So they feel like they can income go. Income tax. Or, or state income tax. Yeah, thanks for correcting me. And, and here in Seattle, specifically in Washington state, even though we don't have that income tax, and maybe at some point we should because the wealthy are being driven out because of the wealth tax. And that's why Jeff Bezos took off. So I, I, I think when I look at some of the candidates, uh, I think of Olga Sagan, for instance, who's down in Belltown. She owns Poroshki Poroshki. She owns five of those. You've seen her on TV a lot. She's a friend of ours. We, uh, we chatted with her one time about selling one of her properties when she's thinking about leaving Seattle. She would have been great on the city council, uh, but she didn't make it to the final vote. When, when, and, and here she is still down in Belltown struggling to keep those doors open, struggling to have police, a police response. They're breaking in all the time. They're stealing her cash. Now they can't have cash. But just struggling to find parking for her employees, struggling to get employees, uh, struggling to keep the doorways clear of all the stuff that ends up in doorways down there. And so in that sense, I don't have a lot of hope because the 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 folks that, that made the final ballot are, are the are, are the people that say if if you support police then you hate the homeless and it's that either or thing and our ability to stand in the middle and go you know what I can support good cops I can appreciate what this detective said and yeah it's a problem when you call nine one one and they send you to the not emergency line and if you call nine one one lately. That's typically what happens, and that non-emergency line is a recording. That's what happens here in Seattle. When a crime is committed, you'll have the mayor come out now and say, hey, the crime rate's down. It's because none of us are reporting those crimes. I, and I have to say, I'm sick and tired of the terror that even happens in my neighborhood, of people breaking into homes, businesses, and cars. Uh, and, I, and I think for me, as my son reaches 18, uh, I might join that exodus too out of Seattle. I don't know that I'm going to leave the state of Washington, but I'm certainly going to move, I think, into a bedroom community where people take their safety more seriously. And like my friend that just lived across the bridge, and Ron, you and I lived across the bridge for 20 years, I've been seriously thinking about moving back across the bridge because the east side, it don't feel like this. We will see you on those side of this. All right, you guys, back to those guys, Ron and Don, in just a moment. I love those guys. I also love listening to Dave Ramsey, if you've ever listened to this radio show, or Barbara Corcoran, who is on Shark Tank. Both of them heavily invested, millions of dollars, heavily invested in real estate. And they say the reason why they're heavily invested, even over leveraged in real estate, is it? it's because, well, because of the way that real estate has performed for them over the last 10, 20 30 years. What they are saying right now to single family home buyers, go out and buy a home right now. You're not going to find a better time than right now because there's a lot of people out there that are waiting for rates to come down. 
That means there's people standing on the sidelines, and Mitch is here from Mitch.Loans. That gives buyers right now an opportunity that they're not going to have and rates come down a little bit. And, and, and buyers, Mitch, flood back into the market, right? That's right. Anytime there's people on the sidelines waiting, that means great things for the future, right? If we see rates drop even a little bit, the number of extra pre-approvals we have in our system, the number of extra buyers we have in our system grows exponentially. And that's going to mean what? It's going to mean home prices jump and they're going to jump up. And if you buy now, you'll get to be a part of that. So let's say they pick up the phone, someone calls you, Mitch Not Loans, and they buy a home and they're not happy happy with the rate, but all of a sudden a year from now or two years from now or even uh, uh, two and a half years from now, rates come down. What do they do? They pick up the phone and call you again. Yeah, they call us again. We refinance into a whole new loan. It comes with just very minor closing costs. And if they're with us, we'll waive them for you. So it's really just a no brainer. Buy now and refi into a lower rate and you'll get that same house for the same price, but with a lower per- yeah. lower payment. Yeah, it's good enough for Dave Ramsey, who I really trust, or Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank. Hey, that's good enough for me. All you have to do right now is go to Mitch.Loans.com. And to find that house, come find us. Go to RonaDunSitDown.com, and we will see you in about 30 seconds. All right, you guys, welcome back to the Ron and Don Show. Our friend Gary Verrill uh, has been on this show before. We've known Gary since our 20s. Uh, we used to share a stage with him performing music. He's one of the best pianists, uh, one of the best session musicians, B3 players, I think, that you ever meet. Uh, he's also a great athlete. He's done something called the Ram, the Race Across America. And uh, Gary is nice enough to borrow some of his Davidson bikes. If you know Davidson bikes, those are hand-built here in Seattle. He had about 19 of those. He's training one year and said, hey, you guys want to come along and train with me? So Ron and I got on bikes. We went up places like Mount Constitution. We got in his Ram van a couple times. We went across America. Ron and I were just reminiscing today about Ron's first century he went 99.7 miles and still feels like he didn't uh, ride a century. And I'm just going to give it to you. <laughs> I don't even know if it was that. It was, it was in the 90s, but yeah, it was, it was yeah. not officially 100 miles. So anyway, Gary has known for a long time that he was dying. He had a, a, a rare form of cancer. He was at the Cancer Care Alliance. Uh, we were with him a couple weeks ago. And it was very interesting because uh, the doctors there said, Gary, you're in such a good shape because he was this Ram athlete where you race your bike across America. He never drank. He never smoked, took very good care of himself. And when he started his cancer journey, you know, late 50s into his 60s, he uh, he actually, they said, had the had the. When they looked at his organs, they said, you have the organs of a, of a 30-year-old. So a lot of people that did some of the experimental treatments that he did, they all passed away. There's over 600 of them. And he was the last man left standing. So over the years, uh, we've had a great connection with him and his kids. Uh, and we are we are uh, mourning the loss of him as he died a couple nights ago. Uh, I deal sometimes with loss by writing things. And I'm going to share uh, real quick here in a moment uh, something that I wrote. Before I do that, uh, Ron shared something that might help a lot of you. Uh, and I can't wait. I'm going to I'm going to listen to this uh, later tonight before I uh, want to tuck my son in and I go to bed because it's about meditation. And I would just say to all the men out there, uh, sometimes we don't deal with death very well. 
and we don't deal with death of a friend. And I know I grew up in a family specifically where the men didn't talk about death, right? Uh, and last night I remember breaking the news to my son that uh, Gary had passed away. And I did that by taking out pictures, showing him playing his trumpet with Gary uh, as Gary was playing his piano. He was always so kind. My son had only been playing trumpet, I think, for eight weeks. And uh, Gary treated him like he was Louis Armstrong at a Christmas party that we were having. And he sat down at the piano and Gunner played that horn. And Ron and I were looking at some of the videos last night. And it really made me laugh out loud. So anyway, we were thinking of the Vero, fam- the Vero family today. And I'm also thinking about a lot of us and a lot of you. And I'm going to tell you a story about Atlantic City because that is the final stop on the race across America. And Ron and I uh, were lucky enough to be in that van uh, that went across America and also ride some of those actual Davidson bikes that Gary rode uh, on that Ram race that was covered by ABC Wide World of Sports uh, back in the day. So Yeah, I think for everybody, hopefully there are people that you meet in your journey that have a outsized influence or impact on you. And that, that was this, this man, as you just described. But for me, I, I found, um, as I knew it was getting closer, a, I, I wanted to make the effort to go out and to see him. Uh, you and I had, had designs on, on doing one more trip out there that, that never happened, but we, we didn't wait. Uh, we took action and we, we did the best we could in the circumstance that we had. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, the thing that I sent you this morning, because Gary's now gone. And, and so moving, you know, and, and we all process stuff in a different way. But there's a, a thing that I heard a while back and it's a book on stoicism. And, and I sent you a, a little chapter of it today that's on audio and it's called the, the last time meditation. And, and the basic thing is, and it, it seems like it's going to be sad. It seems like an exercise uh, in sadness, which I think a lot of people don't want to do. But the, when you actually do it and you consider it, it's not a sad thing. And, and it, 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 this goes back thousands of years. And so the basic premise is to think about the fact that there's going to be a last time that you do everything. And so there's going to be a last time we do a podcast together. There's going to be, uh, uh, and the thing in the, in the book the guy talks about is like, there's going to be a last time you eat chocolate or a last time that you kiss your, your partner when you come in. There's going to be a last time you, you, you go to bed and lay your head on a pillow. And he said, when you do that, you know, a lot of people try to avoid ever thinking about that. Mm. And I think that's sad. That's morbid. Why would I want to do that? You know, just be happy and, and be joyful and go through the life with a smile on your face. And he's like, what this does, uh, if you really stop and you do this, it's a stoic meditation. And you say, like, let's say, let's say this is the last show we ever did. Would we do it differently? You know, would our energy be different? Would our appreciation be different? Uh, if you knew, uh, he t- talks in the meditation as well as like everybody has a favorite restaurant and we all go to that restaurant thinking that I'm going to be able to go to this restaurant a hundred more times. And so this time is, isn't that significant. What if it was your last time you went to your favorite restaurant? Would you appreciate it more? What mm. would you order? Mm. How would you consume that meal? Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you think about it? And so, um, for me, like just listening, going over that again makes me try to be in the moment more of go, you know, there will be a last Ron and Don podcast. And so wh- how am I treating this one? And, and, and what is it, 
it brings it snap focuses things. And so uh, even with the last couple of times I was with Gary, I was like, okay, this, this could be the last time. Mm. And so I, I thought about this meditation before I went there so that I'm not picking up my phone and checking the Seahawks score. Uh, that when I'm there with them, I was there with them. And, um, especially this past weekend. Yes. <laughs> Boy, were they bad. <laughs> so, uh, I hope that I, I'm interested in you listening to it, yeah, seeing what you, you think about it, uh, and seeing if it, it's something I wish I'd learned earlier. Yeah. Because even, you know, there are relationships we've had, uh, where was the last time you hung out with, with a person? Yeah. And you would have treated it differently. I th- and I think not talking about death com- comes to us from World War One and Two. You think about how brutal. That war was everyone in America because our population was so small and our armies and navies were so big. Somehow you were impacted by that. And, and many men and women that went over there, the men that fought, the women that cared for them, you, you saw really brutal things. And so when you came back, people didn't talk about death. They talked about moving on, bootstrapping. And we talked about that before. And then those were the parents of my parents, right? My grandparents who never talked about death, only God knows. You go to church, you leave it at the cross, and when your time is up, your time is up. Uh, and, and that was the number one thing my grandparents used to say, only God knows. Uh, or, and, and then they raised our parents, who were boomers or older, or part of the silent generation, and they didn't talk about death either because their parents didn't talk about death because you were, you were trying to get over that. And that's why it's so interesting before a lot of those veterans died in world war two, they finally told their story. And I remember uh, seeing now you see a lot of Vietnam vets telling their story. And I asked an historian one time that we had on our show, why is that? And he said, well, cause when they get to the end of their life cycle, they remember those men and women that did die over there. And they, they want, it's not so important that, that they themselves are remembered, but they want you to remember their story. And that's really what the, the band of brothers, right, is, is all about. And now with a lot of Vietnam vets, uh, many of them I've seen at the Museum of Flight finally telling their stories as they're into their late seventies, eighties and some nineties. So anyway, I wrote something last night. Um, and I wrote this and a lot of times when I write things now and I publish, I just want them to be out in a place in a space where my son can read these one day. And I wrote it for him. And then I also wrote it for Gary's kids. Cause at the time that we were riding bikes across America, Gary didn't have his five children yet. So anyway, I call him 55 in this. Um, that was my nickname for him because that was his race across America name. Uh, that was his number on his van. It was called 55. So what I did last night is I showed my son some pictures and then I wrote something about all those pictures. And then I explained what those pictures meant this morning before he went to school. So this is called, I am sorry for your loss. And it says tonight I'm thinking about my late friend 55 in pictures and also someone that I used to call Gary Queen. Picture number one, it's an orange van. The orange van is actually where this show started, the Ron and Don show. Ron and I were lucky enough to crew for the Ram years ago. The Ram is called the Race Across America. Today, many riders do it as a team, yeah, a team of four. But back then, men like Gary Verrill, number 55, they did it solo. And to keep the rider awake, there's usually a crew of about eight of us. And Ron and I were assigned to sit at a PA. 
and chit-chat to keep riders from going to sleep. I don't think our radio careers would have ever started without Gary actually inviting us to go and crew on one of those races. Picture number two is actually a picture of my first bike, but I didn't own it because I couldn't afford one. Gary actually gave a bike to myself and to Ron to train on. And one day I would take that very bike called the Davidson and I would ride across America too. That is Gary on that same bike racing across America in one of his very first races. Picture number three, it's actually a picture of myself standing at the Mexican border with my crew on my first ride across America. I've never been really good enough to wear the ring of a Ram racer. And as you can see, I went across America, but I cheated a bit. I went border to border from Canada to Mexico. Uh, Number 55, he went from the Pacific to the Atlantic. So I rode 2,100 miles in about 11 days. He rode 3,100 miles in about 11 days. He raced. I rode. He was a different breed. Picture number four is of my world record. I've been across America a number of times, and I actually have two world records. But get this. When I found out that my mom had cancer, Ron and I wanted to do something to raise money for women like her. So we rode border to border, and we did our radio show from the bike. The reason it's a world record? Well, it's because no one else has ever attempted it. Gary Verrill taught me to pick a route that no one else would be stupid enough to try, and then you have a world record. <laughs> so I did that a number of times, and I almost quit on that ride. Gary actually showed up on a Montana road. He told me to hammer through to the finish. He handed me some Gary Queen, which is actually Dairy Queen, and we kept going. A couple more pictures. Picture number five. This is the picture of me training with uh, Gary riding up Mount Constitution in my 20s. Ron was there that day, too, and he, uh, Ron actually beat me. Uh, when he knew that he was dying of cancer, He called me to give me that picture, and he also gave me his last Davidson bike. That's right, that bike that I'm on. We call it the Purple. He had 19 at one point. That bike is going to the Major Taylor Project and Ed Ewing for a deserving young athlete in the coming weeks to ride Seattle to Portland because Gary loved that ride. Picture number six, it's Gary at his, as well, let me just say this. He's sitting at his piano, but Gary, in my opinion, is one of the best B3 organ players in America. This is a picture four years ago with my son. My son would have been seven or eight. Gary uh, would play music with anyone. My son was only a musician for eight weeks, and here he is today uh, playing guitar, playing trumpet, and playing the tuba. And a lot of times he talks about that very night, that Christmas uh, night, where uh, Gary Verrill made my son feel like Louis Armstrong. Gary played the piano. It's a picture of my son playing his trumpet. Picture number seven, just a picture of a bunch of guys. Ron's in there. Gary's in there. My son's in there. Again, he's playing his trumpet. These are men that I love and admire. Uh, And that was also, there it is, Gary Verrill, or 55, four years ago. He never complained. In fact, you see a huge smile on his face. He was in a lot of pain. He never drank a drop of liquor to numb it. He wanted to feel the pain and learn from it. Uh, That is what he told me. So let me get to the final picture here. And the final picture is very extraordinary. There's a picture of Gary going to treatment. But one of the last pictures is actually a few days ago when Gary whispered to his wonderful wife, Signe, that he was just about to Atlantic City. Atlantic City is the final stop on the race across America. Only real Ram racers wear that ring.
I can do this. <laughs> Only a few solo racers have ever crossed the finish line. Whether he was sharing his gift of music, his gift of sport, his gift of time, Gary Verrill, her 55, as I called him, always elevated those around him. He's one of the best storytellers, husbands, musicians, athletes, and dads that I have ever known. I'm so fortunate to know him. And it's a picture, you guys, of Signe holding his hand, and he has his ram ring on. Uh, it was one of the most important things in his possession. When you read this post, your reaction might be that you are sorry for my loss or sorry for all of our losses, but don't be. Gary knew that he's dying for nine and a half years, and he saw it as a gift. The pain the ram doled out prepared him for his final race. That's what he said. He had called me dozens of nights over the years and left voicemails of wisdom about what he was learning from his cancer. And I know he got to say everything he wanted to his friends, his family, his wife, and his children. So I can't think of the loss tonight as I write this because I'm filled with so much gratitude for all that I've gained and all that we've gained. I'm not sure I'd be a broadcaster today. I sure as hell would have never been brave enough to ride a bike across America. I didn't even own a bike. And my son and I have, would have never discovered the greatness of Dairy Queen, which we call Gary Queen, anytime we would go on a road trip to this day. Every day we wake up, we are all headed to Atlantic City. I hope you have as much fun as he did along the way. Hammer on through to the finish, everyone, and I hope you'll stop and you'll grab yourself a Gary Queen along on your own route. Gary told me to tell you that. I love you all. I will miss you, 55, Don O'Neill. Hey, you guys. Thanks for listening to this show, and we're just going to sign off right here. You keep your head up. You keep your shoulders back, and I'll see you in Atlantic City. You've been listening to the Ron and Don Show, only on and Don Radio Network. Now keep your head up and your shoulders back, and keep blowing that trumpet, and we'll see you next time. Only! 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 On the Ron and Don Radio Network. (laughs) 